Section six of Three Soldiers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by M. B. Three Soldiers by John Dos Passos. Section six. Part three. Machines. One. The fields and the misty blue-green woods slipped by slowly as the box-car rumbled and jolted over the rails, now stopping for hours on sidings amid meadows, where it was quiet and where above the babble of voices of the regiment you could hear the skylarks, now clattering fast over bridges and along the banks of jade-green rivers where the slim poplars were just coming into leaf, and where now and then a fish jumped. The men crowded in the door, grimy and tired, leaning on each other's shoulders, and watching the ploughed lands slip by, and the meadows where the golden-green grass was dappled with buttercups, and the villages of huddled red roofs lost among pale budding trees and masses of peach-blossom. Through the smells of steam and coal-smoke and of unwashed bodies in uniforms came smells of moist fields and of manure from fresh-sowed patches, and of cows and pasture-lands just coming into flower. "'Must be right smart o' craps in this country. Ain't like that damn pullin' yak, Andy,' said Crisfield. "'Well, they made us drill so hard there wasn't any time for the grass to grow.' "'You're damn right there warn't. "'I'd like to live in this country a while,' said Crisfield. "'We might ask him to let us off right here.' "'Can't be that the front's like this,' said Judkins, poking his head out between Andrews's and Crisfield's heads, so that the bristles of his unshaven chin rubbed against Crisfield's cheek. It was a large, square head with closely cropped light hair and porcelain blue eyes under lids that showed white in the red, sunburned face, and a square jaw made a little grey by the sprouting beard. "'Say, Andy, how the hell long have we all been on this goddamn train?' I've done lost track of the time. What's the matter? Are you getting old, Chris? asked Judkins, laughing. Crisfield had slipped out of the place he held and began poking himself in between Andrews and Judkins. We've been on this train four days and five nights, and we've got half a day's rations left, so we must be getting somewhere, said Andrews. It can't be like this at the front. It must be spring there as well as here, said Andrews. It was a day of fluffy, mauve-tinted clouds that moved across the sky, sometimes darkening to deep blue where a small rainstorm trailed across the hills, sometimes brightening to moments of clear sunlight that gave blue shadows to the poplars and shone yellow on the smoke of the engine that puffed on painfully at the head of the long train. Funny, ain't it? How little everything is. Out Indiana way, we wouldn't look at a cornfield that size. But it sort of reminds me the way it used to be out home in the spring of the year. I'd like to see Indiana in the springtime, said Andrews. Well, you'll come out when the war's over and us guys is all home, won't you, Andy? You bet I will. They were going into the suburbs of a town. Rows and clusters of little brick and stucco houses were appearing along the roads. It began to rain from a sky full of lights of amber and lilac color. 
The slate roofs and the pinkish-gray streets of the town shone cheerfully in the rain. The little patches of garden were all vivid emerald green. They were looking at rows and rows of red chimney-pots over wet slate roofs that reflected the bright sky. In the distance rose the purple-gray spire of a church and the irregular forms of old buildings. They passed through a station. Dijon, Red Andrews. On the platform were French soldiers in their blue coats and a good sprinkling of civilians. Gee, these are about the first real civvies I've seen since I came overseas, said Judkins. Those goddamn country people down at Polignac didn't look like real civilians. There's folks dressed like it was New York. They had left the station and were rumbling slowly past interminable freight trains. At last the train came to a dead stop. A whistle sounded. Don't nobody get out, shouted the sergeant from the car ahead. Hail, they keep you in this goddamn car like you was a convict, muttered Chrisfield. I'd like to get out and walk around Dijon. Oh, boy. I swear I'd make a beeline for a dairy lunch, said Judkins. Hell of a fine dairy lunch you'll find among these goddamn frogs. No, Vin Blank is all you'd get in that goddamn town. I'm going to sleep, said Chrisfield. He stretched himself out on the pile of equipment at the end of the car. Andrews sat down near him and stared at his mud-caked boots, running one of his long hands, as brown as Chrisfield's now, through his light, short-cut hair. Chrisfield lay looking at the gaunt outline of Andrews's face against the light through half-closed eyes, and he felt a warm sort of smile inside him as he said to himself, He's a damn good kid. Then he thought of the spring in the hills of southern Indiana, and the mockingbirds singing in the moonlight among the flowering locust trees behind the house. He could almost smell the heavy sweetness of the locust blooms, as he used to smell them sitting on the steps after supper, tired from a day's heavy plowing, while the clatter of his mother's housework came from the kitchen. He didn't wish he was back there, but it was pleasant to think of it now and then, and how the yellow farmhouse looked and the red barn where his father never had been able to find time to paint the door, and the tumble-down cowshed where the shingles were always coming off. He wondered dully what it would be like out there at the front. It couldn't be green and pleasant, the way the country was here. Fellas always said it was hell out there. Well, he didn't give a damn. He went to sleep. He woke up gradually, the warm comfort of sleep giving place slowly to the stiffness of his uncomfortable position with the hobnails of a boot from the back of a pack sticking into his shoulder. Andrews was sitting in the same position, lost in thought. The rest of the men sat at the open doors or sprawled over the equipment. Chrisfield got up, stretched himself, yawned, and went to the door to look out. There was a heavy, important step on the gravel outside. A large man with black eyebrows that met over his nose and a very black, stubbly beard passed the car. There were a sergeant's stripes on his arm. "'Say, Andy!' cried Chrisfield. "'That bastard is a sergeant!' "'Who's that?' asked Andrews, getting up with a smile. 
his blue eyes looking mildly into Crisfield's black ones. You know who I mean. Under their heavy tan, Crisfield's rounded cheeks were flushed. His eyes snapped under their long black lashes. His fists were clutched. Oh, I know, Chris. I didn't know he was in this regiment. God damn him, muttered Crisfield in a low voice, throwing himself down on his packs again. Hold your horses, Chris, said Andrews. We may all cash in our checks before long. No use letting things worry us. I don't give a damn if we do. Nor do I now. Andrews sat down beside Crisfield again. After a while the train got jerkily into motion. The wheels rumbled and clattered over the rails and the clots of mud bounced up and down on the splintered boards of the floor. Crisfield pillowed his head on his arm and went to sleep again, still smarting from the flush of his anger. Andrews looked out through his fingers at the swaying black box-car, at the men sprawled about on the floor, their heads nodding with each jolt, and at the mauve-gray clouds and the bits of sparkling blue sky that he could see behind the silhouettes of the heads and shoulders of the men who stood in the doors. The wheels ground on, endlessly. The car stopped with a jerk that woke up all the sleepers and threw one man off his feet. A whistle blew shrilly outside. "'All right, out of the cars! Snap it up! Snap it up!' yelled the sergeant. The men piled out stiffly, handing the equipment out from hand to hand till it formed a confused heap of packs and rifles outside. All down the train at each door there was a confused pile of equipment and struggling men. "'Snap it up! Full equipment! Line up!' the sergeant yelled. The men fell into line slowly with their packs and rifles. Lieutenants hovered about the edges of the forming lines, tightly belted into their stiff trench coats, scrambling up and down the coal piles of the siding. The men were given at ease and stood leaning on their rifles, staring at a green water tank on three wooden legs over the top of which had been thrown a huge piece of torn grey cheesecloth. When the confused sound of tramping feet subsided, they could hear a noise in the distance, like someone lazily shaking a piece of heavy sheet-iron. The sky was full of little dabs of red, purple, and yellow, and the purplish sunset light was over everything. The order came to march. They marched down a rutted road where the puddles were so deep they had continually to break ranks to avoid them. In a little pine wood on one side were rows of heavy motor trucks and ammunition caissons. Supper was cooking in a field kitchen about which clustered the truck drivers in their wide-visored caps. Beyond the wood the column turned off into a field behind a little group of stone and stucco houses that had lost their roofs. In the field they halted. The grass was brilliant emerald, and the wood and the distant hills were shades of clear, deep blue. Wisps of pale blue mist lay across the field. In the turf here and there were small, clean bites that might have been made by some strange animal. The men looked at them curiously. "'No lights! Remember we're in sight of the enemy!' A match might annihilate the detachment, announced the lieutenant dramatically after having given the orders for the pup tents to be set up. 
When the tents were ready, the men stood about in the chilly white mist that kept growing denser, eating their cold rations. Everywhere were grumbling, snorting voices. "'God, let's turn in, Chris, before our bones are frozen,' said Andrews. Guards had been posted and walked up and down with a business-like stride, peering now and then suspiciously into the little wood where the truck drivers were. Chrisfield and Andrews crawled into their little tent and rolled up together in their blankets, getting as close to each other as they could. At first it was very cold and hard and they squirmed about restlessly, but gradually the warmth from their bodies filled their thin blankets and their muscles began to relax. Andrews went to sleep first, and Chrisfield lay listening to his deep breathing. There was a frown on his face. He was thinking of the man who had walked past the train at Dijon. The last time he had seen that man, Anderson was at training camp. He'd only been a corporal then. He remembered the day the man had been made corporal. It had not been long before that that Chrisfield had drawn his knife on him one night in the barracks. A fellow had caught his hand just in time. Anderson had looked a bit pale that time and had walked away, but he'd never spoken a word to Chrisfield since. As he lay with his eyes closed, pressed close against Andrews's limp, sleeping body, Chrisfield could see the man's face, the eyebrows that joined across the nose and the jaw, always blackish from the heavy beard that looked blue when he had just shaved. At last the tenseness of his mind slackened. He thought of women for a moment, of a fair-haired girl he'd seen from the tram, and then suddenly crushing sleepiness closed down on him, and everything went softly, warmly black as he drifted off to sleep, with no sense but the coldness of one side and the warmth of his bunkie's body on the other. In the middle of the night he awoke and crawled out of the tent. Andrews followed him. Their teeth chattered a little, and they stretched their legs stiffly. It was cold, but the mist had vanished. The stars shone brilliantly. They walked out a little way into the field away from the bunch of tents to make water. A faint rustling and breathing noise, as of animals herded together, came from the sleeping regiment. Somewhere a brook made a shrill gurgling. They strained their ears, but they could hear no guns. They stood side by side, looking up at the multitudes of stars. "'That's Orion,' said Andrews. "'What?' "'That bunch of stars there is called Orion. Do you see him? It's supposed to look like a man with a bow, but he always looks to me like a fellow striding across the sky. "'Some stars tonight, ain't there?' Gee, what's that? Behind the dark hills a glow rose and fell like the glow in a forge. The front must be that way, said Andrews, shivering. I guess we'll know tomorrow. Yes, tomorrow night we'll know more about it, said Andrews. They stood silent a moment, listening to the noise the brook made. God, it's quiet, ain't it? That can't be the front. Smell that? What is it? Smells like an apple tree in bloom somewhere. Hell, let's get in before our blankets get cold. 
Andrews was still staring at the group of stars he had said was Orion. Crisfield pulled him by the arm. They crawled into their tent again, rolled up together, and immediately were crushed under an exhausted sleep. As far ahead of him as Crisfield could see were packs and heads with caps at a variety of angles, all bobbing up and down with the swing of the brisk marching time. A fine, warm rain was falling, mingling with the sweat that ran down his face. The column had been marching a long time, along a straight road that was worn and scarred with heavy traffic. Fields and hedges where clusters of yellow flowers were in bloom had given place to an avenue of poplars. The light, wet trunks and the stiff branches hazy with green filed by, interminable, as interminable as the confused tramp of feet and jingle of equipment that sounded in his ears. "'Say, are we going towards the front?' God damned if I know. Ain't no front within miles. Men's sentences came shortly through their heavy breathing. The column shifted over to the side of the road to avoid a train of motor trucks going the other way. Crisfield felt the heavy mud spurt up over him as truck after truck rumbled by. With the wet back of one hand he tried to wipe it off his face, but the grit, when he rubbed it, hurt his skin made tender by the rain. He swore long and whiningly half aloud. His rifle felt as heavy as an iron girder. They entered a village of plaster and timber houses. Through open doors they could see into comfortable kitchens where copper pots gleamed and where the floors were of clean red tiles. In front of some of the houses were little gardens full of crocuses and hyacinths where box-bushes shone a very dark green in the rain. They marched through the square with its pavement of little yellow rounded cobbles, its grey church with a pointed arch in the door, its cafés with names painted over them. Men and women looked out of doors and windows. The column perceptibly slackened its speed but kept on, and as the houses dwindled and became farther apart along the road, the men's hope of stopping vanished. Ears were deafened by the confused tramp of feet on the macadam road. Men's feet seemed as lead, as if all the weight of the pack hung on them. Shoulders, worn callous, began to grow tender and sore under the constant sweating. Heads drooped. Each man's eyes were on the heels of the man ahead of him that rose and fell, rose and fell endlessly. Marching became for each man a personal struggle with his pack that seemed to have come alive, that seemed something malicious and overpowering, wrestling to throw him. The rain stopped and the sky brightened a little, taking on pale yellowish lights, as if the clouds that hid the sun were growing thin. The column halted at the edge of a group of farms and barns that scattered along the road. The men sprawled in all directions along the roadside, hiding the bright green grass with the mud color of their uniforms. Crisfield lay in the field beside the road, pressing his hot face into the wet, sprouting clover. The blood throbbed through his ears. His arms and legs seemed to cleave to the ground, as if he would never be able to move them again. 
he closed his eyes. Gradually a cold chill began stealing through his body. He sat up and slipped his arms out of the harness of his pack. Someone was handing him a cigarette, and he sniffed a little acrid, sweet smoke. Andrews was lying beside him, his head propped against his pack, smoking, and poking a cigarette towards his friend with a muddy hand. His blue eyes looked strangely from out the flaming red of his mud-splotched face. Crisfield took the cigarette and fumbled in his pocket for a match. That nearly did it for me, said Andrews. Crisfield grunted. He pulled greedily on the cigarette. A whistle blew. Slowly the men dragged themselves off the ground and fell into line, drooping under the weight of their equipment. The companies marched off separately. Crisfield overheard the lieutenant saying to a sergeant, Damn fool business, that. Why the hell couldn't they have sent us here in the first place? So we ain't going to the front after all, said the sergeant. Front, hell, said the lieutenant. The lieutenant was a small man who looked like a jockey with a coarse red face, which, now that he was angry, was almost purple. "'I guess they're going to quarter us here,' said somebody. Immediately everybody began saying, "'We're going to be quartered here!' They stood waiting in formation a long while, the packs cutting into their backs and shoulders. At last the sergeant shouted out, "'All right, take your stuff upstairs!' Stumbling on each other's heels, they climbed up into a dark loft, where the air was heavy with the smell of hay and with an acridity of cow manure from the stables below. There was a little straw in the corners, on which those who got there first spread their blankets. Crisfield and Andrews tucked themselves in a corner from which, through a hole where the tiles had fallen off the roof, they could see down into the barnyard, where white and speckled chickens pecked about with jerky movements. A middle-aged woman stood in the doorway of the house looking suspiciously at the files of khaki-clad soldiers that shuffled slowly into the barns by every door. An officer went up to her, a little red book in his hand. A conversation about some matter proceeded painfully. The officer grew very red. Andrews threw back his head and laughed luxuriously rolling from side to side in the straw. Crisfield laughed, too. He hardly knew why. Over their heads they could hear the feet of pigeons on the roof, and a constant, drowsy roo-coo-coo-coo. Through the barnyard smells began to drift, the greasiness of food cooking in the field kitchen. "'I hope they give us something good to eat,' said Crisfield. "'I'm hungry as a thrasher.' "'So am I,' said Andrews. "'Say, Andy, you can talk their language a little, can't you?' Andrews nodded his head vaguely. "'Well, maybe we can get some eggs or something out of the lady there. "'Will you try after mess?' "'All right.' They both lay back in the straw and closed their eyes. Their cheeks still burned from the rain. Everything seemed very peaceful. The men sprawled about, talking in low, drowsy voices. Outside another shower had come up and beat softly on the tiles of the roof. Crisfield thought he had never been so comfortable in his life, although his soaked shoes pinched his cold feet 
and his knees were wet and cold. But in the drowsiness of the rain, and of voices talking quietly about him, he fell asleep. He dreamed he was at home in Indiana, but instead of his mother cooking at the stove in the kitchen, there was the Frenchwoman who had stood in the farmhouse door, and near her stood a lieutenant with a little red book in his hand. He was eating cornbread and syrup off a broken plate. It was fine cornbread with a great deal of crust on it, crisp and hot, on which the butter was cold and sweet to his tongue. Suddenly he stopped eating and started swearing, shouting at the top of his lungs, "'You goddamn!' he started, but he couldn't seem to think of anything more to say. "'You goddamn!' he started again. The lieutenant looked towards him, wrinkling his black eyebrows that met across his nose. He was Sergeant Anderson. Chris drew his knife and ran at him, but it was Andy, his bunkie, he had run his knife into. He threw his arms round Andy's body, crying hot tears. He woke up. Mess kits were clinking all about the dark, crowded loft. The men had already started piling down the stairs. The larks filled the wine-tinged air with a constant chiming of little bells. Chrisfield and Andrews were strolling across a field of white clover that covered the brow of a hill. Below in the valley they could see a cluster of red roofs of farms and the white ribbon of the road where long trains of motor-trucks crawled like beetles. The sun had just set below the blue hills on the other side of the shallow valley. The air was full of the smell of clover and of hawthorn from the hedgerows. They took deep breaths as they crossed the field. "'It's great to get away from that crowd,' Andrews was saying. Chrisfield walked on silently, dragging his feet through the matted clover. A leaden dullness weighed like some sort of warm, choking coverlet on his limbs, so that it seemed an effort to walk, an effort to speak. Yet under it his muscles were taut and trembling, as he had known them to be before when he was about to get into a fight or make love to a girl. "'Why the hell didn't they let us get into it?' he said suddenly. "'Yes, anything would be better than this. Wait, wait, wait.' They walked on, hearing the constant chirrup of the larks, the brush of their feet through the clover, the faint jingle of some coins in Chrisfield's pocket and in the distance the irregular snoring of an aeroplane motor. As they walked, Andrews leaned over from time to time and picked a couple of the white clover flowers. The aeroplane came suddenly nearer and swooped in a wide curve above the field, drowning every sound with the roar of its exhaust. They made out the figures of the pilot and the observer before the plane rose again and vanished against the ragged purple clouds of the sky. The observer had waved a hand at them as he passed. They stood still in the darkening field, staring up at the sky, where a few larks still hung chirping. "'I'd like to be one of them guys,' said Chrisfield. "'You would?' "'God damn it, I'd do anything to get out of this hellish infantry. This ain't no sort of a life for a man to be treated like he was a nigger.' "'No, it's no sort of life for a man.' If they'd let us get to the front and do some fighting and be done with it, but all we do is drill and have grenade practice and drill again and then have bayonet practice and drill again. 
enough to drive a feller crazy. What the hell's the use of talking about it, Chris? We can't be any lower than we are, can we? Andrews laughed. There's that plane again. Where? There, just going down behind the piece of woods. That's where their field is. I bet them guys has a good time. I put in an application back in training camp for aviation. Ain't never heard nothing from it, though. If I had, I wouldn't be lower than dirt in this hog pen. It's wonderful up here on the hill this evening, said Andrews, looking dreamily at the pale orange band of light where the sun had set. Let's go down and get a bottle of wine. Now you're talking. I wonder if that girl's down there tonight. Antoinette? Um-hmm. Boy, I'd like to have her by myself some night. Their steps grew brisker as they strode along a grass-grown road that led through high hedgerows to a village under the brow of the hill. It was almost dark under the shadow of the bushes on either side. Overhead, the purple clouds were washed over by a pale yellow light that gradually faded to gray. Birds chirped and rustled among the young leaves. Andrews put his hand on Crisfield's shoulder. Let's walk slow, he said. We don't want to get out of here too soon. He grabbed carelessly at a little cluster of hawthorn flowers as he passed them and seemed reluctant to untangle the thorny branches that caught in his coat and on his loosely wound puttees. Hell, man, said Crisfield. We won't have time to get a bellyful. It must be getting late already. They hastened their steps again and came in a moment to the first tightly shuttered houses of the village. In the middle of the road was an M.P. who stood with his legs wide apart, waving his billy languidly. He had a red face. His eyes were fixed on the shuttered upper window of a house, through the chinks of which came a few streaks of yellow light. His lips were puckered as if to whistle, but no sound came. He swayed back and forth indecisively. An officer came suddenly out of the little green door of the house in front of the M.P., who brought his heels together with a jump and saluted, holding his hand a long while to his cap. The officer flicked a hand up hastily to his hat, snatching his cigar out of his mouth for an instant. As the officer's steps grew fainter down the road, the M.P. gradually returned to his former position. Crisfield and Andrews had slipped by on the other side and gone in at the door of a small ramshackle house of which the windows were closed by heavy wooden shutters. "'I bet there ain't many of them bastards at the front,' said Chris. "'Not many of either kind of bastards,' said Andrews, laughing, as he closed the door behind them. They were in a room that had once been the parlour of a farmhouse. The chandelier with its bits of crystal and the orange blossoms on a dusty piece of red velvet under a bell-glass on the mantelpiece denoted that. The furniture had been taken out, and four square oak tables crowded in. At one of the tables sat three Americans, and at another a very young, olive-skinned French soldier, who sat hunched over his table, looking moodily down into his glass of wine. A girl in a faded frock of some purplish material that showed the strong curves of her shoulders and breasts slouched into the room, 
her hands in the pocket of a dark blue apron, against which her rounded forearms showed golden brown. Her face had the same golden tan, under a mass of dark blonde hair. She smiled when she saw the two soldiers, drawing her thin lips away from her ugly yellow teeth. "'Ça va bien, Antoinette?' asked Andrews. "'Oui,' she said, looking beyond their heads at the French soldier who sat at the other side of the little room. "'A bottle of Van Rouge, vite,' said Chrisfield. "'You needn't be so damn vite about it tonight, Chris,' said one of the men at the other table. "'Why?' "'Ain't a goin' to be no roll call. Corporal told me hisself. Sarge has gone out to get stewed and the loot's away.' Sure, said another man, we can stay out as late as we goddamn please tonight. There's a new MP in town, said Chrisfield. I saw him myself. Didn't you too? Didn't you too, Andy? Andrews nodded. He was looking at the Frenchman, who sat with his face in shadow and his black lashes covering his eyes. A purplish flush had suffused the olive skin at his cheekbones. Oh, boy, said Chrisfield. That old wine sure do go down fast. Say, Antoinette, got any cognac? I'm going to have some more wine, said Andrews. <laughs> go ahead, Andy, have all you want. I want something to warm my guts. Antoinette brought a bottle of cognac and two small glasses and sat down in an empty chair with her red hands crossed on her apron. Her eyes moved from Crisfield to the Frenchman and back again. Crisfield turned a little round in his chair and looked at the Frenchman, feeling in his eyes for a moment a glance of the man's yellowish-brown eyes. Andrews leaned back against the wall, sipping his dark-colored wine, his eyes contracted dreamily, fixed on the shadows of the chandelier, which the cheap oil lamp with its tin reflector cast on the peeling plaster of the wall opposite. Crisfield punched him. Wake up, Andy, are you asleep? No, said Andy, smiling. Have a little more cognac. Crisfield poured out two more glasses unsteadily. His eyes were on Antoinette again. The faded purple frock was hooked at the neck. The first three hooks were undone, revealing a V-shape of golden-brown skin and a bit of whitish underwear. Say, Andy, he said, putting his arm round his friend's neck and talking into his ear. Talk up to her for me, will you, Andy? I won't let that goddamn frog get her, no, I won't, by God. Talk up to her for me, Andy. Andrews laughed. I'll try, he said, but there's always the Queen of Sheba, Chris. Antoinette, j'ai un ami, started Andrews, making a gesture with his long, dirty hand towards Chris. Antoinette showed her bad teeth in a smile. Joli garçon, said Andrews. Antoinette's face became impassive and beautiful again. Crisfield leaned back in his chair with an empty glass in his hand and watched his friend admiringly. Antoinette, mon ami, vous... vous admire, said Andrews in a courtly voice. A woman put her head in the door. It was the same face and hair as Antoinette's, ten years older, only the skin instead of being golden-brown, was sallow and wrinkled. "'Viens!' said the woman in a shrill voice. Antoinette got up, brushed heavily against Crisfield's leg as she passed him, and disappeared. 
The Frenchman walked across the room from his corner, saluted gravely, and went out. Chrisfield jumped to his feet. The room was like a white box reeling about him. "'That frog's gone after her!' he shouted. "'No, he ain't, Chris!' cried someone from the next table. "'Sit tight, old boy. We're betting on you.' "'Yes, sit down and have a drink, Chris,' said Andy. "'I've got to have something more to drink. I, I haven't had a thing to drink all the evening.' He pulled him back into his chair. Chrisfield tried to get up again. Andrews hung on him so that the chair upset. Then both sprawled on the red tiles of the floor. "'The house is pinched!' said a voice. Chrisfield saw Judkins standing over him, a grin on his large red face. He got to his feet and sat sulkily in his chair again. Andrews was already sitting opposite him, looking impassive as ever. The tables were full now. Someone was singing in a droning voice. Oh, the oak and the ash and the weeping willow tree. Oh, green grows the grass in God's country. Oh, Indiana, shouted Chris, that's the only God's country I know. He suddenly felt that he could tell Andy all about his home and the wide cornfields shimmering and rustling under the July sun, and the creek with red clay banks where he used to go in swimming. He seemed to see it all before him, to smell the whiny smell of the silo, to see the cattle with their chewing mouths always stained a little with green, waiting to get through the gate to the water trough, and the yellow dust and roar of wheat thrashing and the quiet evening breeze cooling his throat and neck when he lay out on a shack of hay that he had been tossing all day long under the tingling sun. But all he managed to say was, "'Indiana's God's country, ain't it, Andy?' "'Oh, he has so many,' muttered Andrews. "'I've seen a hailstone measured nine inches around at home. "'Honest to God, I have. "'Must be as good as a barrage. "'I'd like to see any goddamn barrage do the damage "'one of our thunder and lightning storms will do,' shouted Chris. "'I guess all the barrage we're going to see is grenade practice.' "'Don't you worry, buddy,' said somebody across the room. "'You'll see enough of it. "'This war's going to last damn long. "'I'd like to get in some licks at those Huns tonight. "'Honest to God, I would, Andy,' muttered Chris in a low voice. "'He felt his muscles contract with a furious irritation. "'He looked through half-closed eyes at the men in the room, "'seeing them in distorted white lights and reddish shadows.' He thought of himself throwing a grenade among a crowd of men. Then he saw the face of Anderson, a ponderous white face with eyebrows that met across his nose and a bluish shaved chin. "'Where does he stay at, Andy? I'm going to get him!' Andrews guessed what he meant. "'Sit down and have a drink, Chris. Remember, you're going to sleep with the Queen of Sheba tonight. Not if I can't get them goddamn... His voice trailed off into an inaudible muttering of oaths. Oh, the oak and the ash and the weeping willow tree. Oh, green grows the grass in God's country. Somebody sang again. Chrisfield saw a woman standing beside the table, with her back to him, collecting the bottles. Andy was paying her. 
Antoinette, he said. He got to his feet and put his arms round her shoulders. With a quick movement of the elbows she pushed him back into the chair. She turned round. He saw the sallow face and thin breasts of the older sister. She looked in his eyes with surprise. He was grinning drunkenly. As she left the room, she made a sign to him with her head to follow her. He got up and staggered out the door, pulling Andrews after him. In the inner room was a big bed with curtains where the women slept, and the fireplace where they did their cooking. It was dark except for the corner where he and Andrews stood blinking in the glare of a candle on the table. Beyond they could only see ruddy shadows and the huge curtained bed with its red coverlet. The Frenchman, somewhere in the dark of the room, said something several times. Avion bouche! St! They were quiet. Above them they heard the snoring of aeroplane motors, rising and falling like the buzzing of a fly against a window pane. They all looked at each other curiously. Antoinette was leaning against the bed, her face expressionless. Her heavy hair had come undone and fell in smoky gold waves about her shoulders. The older woman was giggling. "'Come on, let's see what's doing, Chris,' said Andrews. They went out into the dark village street. "'To hell with women, Chris! This is the war!' cried Andrews in a loud, drunken voice as they reeled arm in arm up the street. "'You bet it's the war! I'm a-gonna beat up!' Chrisfield felt his friend's hand clapped over his mouth. He let himself go limply, feeling himself pushed to the side of the road. Somewhere in the dark he heard an officer's voice say, "'Bring those men to me.' "'Yes, sir,' came another voice. Slow, heavy footsteps came up the road in their direction. Andrews kept pushing him back along the side of a house, until suddenly they both fell sprawling in a manure pit. "'Lie still, for God's sake,' muttered Andrews, throwing an arm over Chrisfield's chest. A thick odor of dry manure filled their nostrils. They heard the steps come nearer, wander about irresolutely, and then go off in the direction from which they had come. Meanwhile, the throb of motors overhead grew louder and louder. Well, came the officer's voice. Couldn't find them, sir, mumbled the other voice. Nonsense, those men were drunk, came the officer's voice. Yes, sir, came the other voice humbly. Chrisfield started to giggle. He felt he must yell aloud with laughter. The nearest motor stopped its sing-song roar making the night seem deathly silent. Andrews jumped to his feet. The air was split by a shriek, followed by a racking, snorting explosion. They saw the wall above their pit light up with a red momentary glare. Chrisfield got to his feet, expecting to see flaming ruins. The village street was the same as ever. There was a little light from the glow of the moon, still under the horizon, gave to the sky. A window in the house opposite showed yellow. In it was a blue silhouette of an officer's cap and uniform. A little group stood in the street below. "'What was that?' the form in the window was shouting in a peremptory voice. "'German aeroplane just dropped a bomb, Major!' 
came a breathless voice in reply. Why the devil don't he close that window? A voice was muttering all the while. Just a target for him to aim at. A target to aim at. Any damage done? asked the major. Through the silence the snoring of the motors sing-songed ominously overhead, like giant mosquitoes. I seem to hear more, said the major in his drawling voice. Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, lots, answered an eager voice. For God's sake, tell him to close the window, lieutenant, muttered another voice. How the hell can I tell him? You tell him. We'll all be killed, that's all there is about it. There are no shelters or dugouts, drawled the major from the window. That's headquarters' fault. There's the cellar, cried the eager voice again. Oh, said the major. Three snorting explosions in quick succession drowned everything in a red glare. The street was suddenly filled with a scuttle of villagers running to shelter. Say, Andy, they may have a roll call, said Chrisfield. We'd better cut for home across country, said Andrews. They climbed cautiously out of their manure pit. Chrisfield was surprised to find that he was trembling. His hands were cold. It was with difficulty he kept his teeth from chattering. God will stink for a week. Let's get out, muttered Chrisfield, of this goddamn village. They ran out through an orchard, broke through a hedge, and climbed up the hill across the open fields. Down the main road, an anti-aircraft gun had started barking, and the sky sparkled with exploding shrapnel. The putt, putt, putt of a machine-gun had begun somewhere. Chrisfield strode up the hill in step with his friend. Behind them, bomb followed bomb, and above them the air seemed full of exploding shrapnel and droning planes. The cognac still throbbed a little in their blood. They stumbled against each other now and then as they walked. From the top of the hill they turned and looked back. Chrisfield felt a tremendous elation thumping stronger than the cognac through his veins. Unconsciously, he put his arm round his friend's shoulders. They seemed the only live things in a reeling world. Below in the valley, a house was burning brightly. From all directions came the yelp of anti-aircraft guns, and overhead, unperturbed, continued the leisurely sing-song of the motors. Suddenly Chrisfield burst out laughing. "'By God, I always have fun when I'm out with you, Andy,' he said. They turned and hurried down the other slope of the hill towards the farms where they were quartered. End of Section 6